Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. And again, I look at the barometer not just in terms of having an episode, but I look at my wellness as an ongoing thing. So even if I have a bad day, that doesn't mean I'm depressed, but I evaluate that and I think, oh, what can I do to feel better? Do I need to have a bath? Do I need to catch up with a friend? So I look at mental health maintenance as a daily exercise. I don't even think about it as bipolar disorder anymore. And whether that's been the key to staying well, I can't say, but I haven't had an episode in a very, very long time. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse. They are the go-to agency for any organization with digital needs. What are your digital needs? I had plenty before I met Neon Treehouse and they are fulfilling them in spades week on week. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Dov Deegan. Dov is a general medicine physician and nephrologist at Eastern Health and Epworth. He's a director of physician education, clinical lead, teaching associate, and mental health advocate. I've been watching Dov's career from a distance and so admire the way he has excelled in medicine and at the same time become a strong advocate for people living with mental illness. He's done so by sharing his own experience in an environment which has historically been extremely hostile to such openness. Dov often speaks for Beyond Blue and is a Sane Australia ambassador. A few things that stand out about Dov. He's a high performer in one of the most demanding high-performing areas of specialist medicine. He uses his position and experience to change things for current and future doctors. He did so from a place of experiencing horrible treatment and discrimination. He's an amazing speaker who shows uncommon levels of authenticity and freely shares sensitive personal experiences that many others wouldn't. We covered a lot of ground here and share our mental health experiences and journey. We talk about how things have changed for doctors, but there's still such a long way to go. We talk about high performance and how to optimize mental health and well-being. We discuss becoming a mental health advocate, going public, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy my candid conversation with Dov as much as I did. So I'm here with Dov. Thanks so much for coming, mate. It's great to be with you. No problem. I love your t-shirt. You want to explain that? Oh, it says Mr. Perfect on it. Um, when I was on LinkedIn, uh, there's a, a company that um, looks after men's mental health and they have communal barbecues and things just to raise awareness about um, all matters pertaining to men's mental health. Um, and he, he liked what I was doing and the work I was doing, so he asked me to send a T-shirt. So It's always good when people send you things in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> Usually, unless a parking fine, that's different. That's right. <laughs> um, so let's start with your story and, and just tell me a bit about your journey into where, where you've landed uh, yeah. professionally, personally. Um, however you want to kick off is fine. Yeah. Uh, it's always uh, it's always a big thing when you think of your story. We've all, every one of us has a big story. But I guess the the one pertaining to what we've been talking about is um, to do with living with mental illness. Uh, so when I was 17, uh, I was in year 12 at high school and I had my first uh, ever encounter with mental illness. Prior to that, I was really well, high functioning, just a typical teenage kid. And essentially, I had symptoms like feeling very elevated. I uh, was running on lots of energy, sleeping two, three hours a night, 
was really grandiose with my ideas. I was talking really fast. I was super confident, uh, bordering on aggressive, spending lots and lots of money on really ridiculous things. And something was wrong, but I felt like I was on top of the world. So it didn't really come to anyone's major attention, although a few people around me were scratching their heads wondering why I had changed all of a sudden. And then when I finished high school, I successfully completed VCE despite that high for six months and no sleep. I believe I'm very successful. You don't underplay it. <laughs> did well. And then after school, I went on schoolies and I crashed. I became very sad. I was crying all the time. Wasn't enjoying things, even though I'm typically a little bit more extroverted. I uh, had these pains in my stomach. Had no urge to get out of bed every day. And it was at that point that I sought medical attention and was initially diagnosed with depression. But it wasn't until two years later that I was actually correctly diagnosed as having bipolar disorder. Uh, and that made sense, having that label, because I, I could understand the emotional roller coaster I'd, ride I'd been on whereby I'd been elevated or what's called hypomanic for six months of year 12 and then a major depressive episode after that. And uh, I guess the uplifting part of the story is that I uh, enrolled in medical school once I'd completed high school and successfully completed medicine with honours um, despite the mental health setbacks. I was actually hospitalised as a second-year medical student for another manic episode. For how long? Uh, that was for a month. Okay. And I had four weeks left of second-year med school and I had to repeat the whole year to wait for second semester oh. just so I could finish those four weeks. Oh. Um, but despite the setbacks and the challenges, I guess tenacity and perseverance prevailed and I finished the degree, I got honours um, and I went on to do um, my major training in a great hospital and then I went on to become a double trained specialist in general medicine, which is like internal diagnostics and also nephrology, which is kidney disease. And I practice in both specialties in both a major metropolitan hospital um, and also private um, practice as well. And I have some non-clinical roles as well, like director of physician education. So I look after junior doctors who want to become specialists, um, help them with their education. Um, I also got promoted to be a clinical wellness lead, which is essentially looking after the mental health of doctors, because that's an area that needs a lot of attention and doesn't really have anyone in that role. Um, and I've been a practicing specialist for three years now. Let's talk a little bit about the breadth and scale of the problem that is sort of facing young medical students in terms of mental health? It's a huge problem. I mean, we already know there's a big stigma around mental illness in wider society. The prevalence is thought to be one in five people in Australia per year, um, but I think it's probably higher. And mental illness also has a spectrum, so you don't have to have a label or a full-blown diagnosis to, to experience um, symptoms of, of mental illness. Uh, Beyond Blue did some research a few years ago, which showed that the prevalence of mental illness is actually higher amongst doctors. And the World Health Organization has also defined physician burnout, which was previously and still is quite under-recognized. So even though burnout is not mental illness per se, it's a very per pervasive problem um, where people get compassion fatigue, they get sick of going to work, um, there's an increased risk of absenteeism. Um, people feel like they've lost their passion for things. Um, they get quite depressed and withdrawn from their patients. Um, and it affects at least 50% of people in a study that was done in America. And it also has a huge cost burden as well. Um, so it's a, it's a massive problem. It's very under-recognized. And I think there's two parts to this problem. Part A is obviously the awareness 
understanding what mental illness looks like at work, understanding what colleagues in distress looks like. And then part B is really what do we do with that information? And I think both of those areas need work and need um, the light of awareness shine on them. So we know that there's a huge burden of mental illness. We know that there's unfortunately a lot of doctors and nurses and medical students that take their lives uh, every year. And it's very sad. And to me, it's not widely discussed. And I don't think that we're giving enough um, to tackle this issue. And I feel as though if it was a medical illness or an organic illness like coronavirus or something else, uh, it would get a lot more media attention. But for some reason, that stigma of mental illness, of suicide being self-inflicted, doesn't get the same level of attention, and it should. And we're the caregivers of society, and yet we're suffering more from this burden than mainstream society, and that's very underrecognized. And that's part of the reasons why I discuss this on such a broad scale, because I want this to be first and foremost at the centre of attention, and I want the light of awareness shine on this very important topic. Yeah, I think it's it's critical, um, especially in the light of hearing about sort of the current you know, tragedies that are just piling up. I mean, you've heard of a number of cases of medical students who have taken their lives in recent times. It's, um, yeah, it's truly devastating. What What is the state of play at the moment? Because I hear in some circles that there's a bit of a fear around um, disclosing a mental health issue out of fear that there could be APRA implications hmm. or there could be sort of professional practice implications from doing so. That's right. So APRA is our essentially regulations board. We have to sign up with APRA every year uh, to continue practicing as a doctor. And one of the questions they ask is, you know, has anything happened to you in the last year that could impair your capacity or, you know, ability to to practice as a clinician? And there certainly have been cases where people have been reported to APRA for having mental health issues and then have conditions subsequently placed on their license. So it is a little bit punitive in that sense why would people come forward if the regulatory body is going to punish them instead of help them? And so I think that's that needs to be changed. And I know that there are people who are who, who are trying to work on changing that. There's also a personal stigma with disclosing, and this wouldn't just be restricted to doctors, but if you approach your employer and say, hi, I've got schizophrenia, is that going to impair your application in some way? We'd like to think that it doesn't, but mm. I think that it does. I can tell you for, from my own experience and my beliefs also that I would never disclose a mental illness um, on a work uh, on a work piece of work paperwork just because, you know, you can't be confident that people on the other end are going to treat that information the right way. And that's exactly right. And that's why... I speak openly. That's why I'm trying to dispel this um, perpetual stigma, which I think comes from ignorance. Um, You know, ignorance breeds fear. It's the unknown. People don't know, are you a liability because you've got a mental illness? I know that my career progression was jeopardized because of what happened to me. I had um, some employers ask me about episodes of illness and hospitalization, which they're not allowed to do, which really threw me in interview situations. And I know that it has influenced my career progression. Fortunately, I've gotten to the point where I wanted to, and I'm very successful and high functioning. Um, but I know from experience that I wasn't always treated equitably and fairly. And I can imagine that people in wider society um, would be placed in a similar situation when they're facing job interviews. And I think the only way that this is going to change 
is by being open and openly disclosing so that we can change that very culture. And I know that by coming out in inverted commas with bipolar disorder, everybody knows now, and yet it hasn't influenced my position as a clinician. And if anything, it's actually ironically strengthened it because people respect me more now and patients definitely can sense the empathy that I have for them. And if they have issues with mental illness, well, they've got no trouble disclosing it to me. So it's bridged connection through vulnerability. And I think that ultimately vulnerability is at the heart of human connection. And I know that peers have approached me and shared their stories as well. And it's allowed for widespread dialogue about this issue. So by owning it and speaking openly about it, it's actually lowered everyone else's fears and concerns and allowed them in turn to share. And by no means am I saying that everyone should come out and tell their employers because I think you have to do it when you're ready and I certainly didn't do it from the start. But there is a lot of power in owning your story and also showing people that it's nothing to be afraid of. And in some ways, someone who's well-managed and has self-awareness and insight can be higher functioning than someone that's never self-examined, that's never bothered to be introspective or ask who they are and really question the deeper things in life. Yeah, it's really well said. And I think what I take away from some of what you said is just the the power of vulnerability. And I think with vulnerability, it's so important that someone goes first. And I know in the medical profession, there has not been many people like you who have gone out and said, hey, I'm a practicing doctor. Um, I live with bipolar disorder. I'm very high functioning. And let me tell you all about it. Mm, that's and, right. and I think by doing that, if I, I imagine for you, it must have been a huge sense of disarming everyone else, mm. uh, but also like liberating yourself of like what can feel like a bit of a, a dark secret. That's right. And I think the aim of life is really to figure out who we are, essentially, and then have the courage to walk the talk. When we're all alone in our room, we know who we want to be. But when we go out into society, there's other people's expectations. There's the fear of, you know, trying to fit in all those social norms that we conform to. So the more that you can come out and say, hey, I'm this person, I'm that person. In some, For some people, it's their sexuality. For some people, it's mental illness. It doesn't matter. But coming out as yourself is paradoxically the hardest but most liberating thing that you can do. Because once you know who you are and once you're living your best life, no one can touch you. No one at work can point their finger at me and say, oh, he's the one with bipolar disorder because we know. I've already told them. Mm. And you know what? Since I told my story publicly in 2015, I have not had one disparaging remark about it Mm. from colleagues, peers. I even had an employer who I think discriminated against me in an interview many years ago come up to me privately and say, could I have done anything differently? That's how far-reaching me telling the story was and showing that I'm still doing really well despite the setbacks. That's sort of how pervasive it can be. And that's really the power of owning your story, living your truth and just being yourself, which on the surface sounds really easy, but it's actually a very difficult thing to do. And I think what you do particularly well, as I mentioned before we kicked off today, was the way that you've told the story around it. It's not mutually exclusive to have a mental illness and to be high functioning. You know, you can hold both at the same time, mm. and the way that you write about that in your in your blogs and the pieces that you've done, um, it, it's a really important story for society to hear. It's a narrative that that kind of can change our perceptions of mental illness mm. and people with mental illness. Well, before I told my story, 
people didn't know about me except for close family and friends. And I remember people were so shocked and surprised when I sort of, again, came out inverted commas because I was so high functioning. I did really well in medical school and I passed my specialist exam straight away. I got into two specialties. You know, I had an almost seamless journey if you didn't know about the setbacks. And I think that that's a really important message to impart. People hear mental illness and they think you're disabled in some way, you can't achieve there must be something wrong with you. And so when people see me and hear me say, yes, I have bipolar disorder, they get a bit confused because I have all of these really positive things going for me. And when I give my mental health outreach talks, I always mention bipolar disorder last in the biography because I don't think the label defines me. In the same vein that someone who's got high blood pressure or hypertension or a diagnosis of diabetes, that doesn't define them. You would never look at a diabetic person and think, oh, they can't be a CEO of an organization because they have diabetes or they have high blood pressure, so we should stigmatize them. But for some reason, there's still this black cloud that exists over mental illness. And I'm not saying I'm a perfect individual, but I hope that my story can at least inspire some people out there that you can have a label and you can still not only live a great life, but you can live a high-functioning life. You can you can be as fantastic as you want to be because it's really all a mindset. And self-mastery is something that we can all do, irrespective of having a label of a mental illness or not. So that's a big sort of motivation for why I share my story and say, look, I've experienced both sides of the fence, both as a doctor and as a patient. Why did you decide to come out and tell your story? Um, I was traveling overseas at the time. I was actually in Israel by myself and I was thinking of things that I wanted to do with my life apart from medicine. And, you know, you have that free space when you travel to just sort of think about other things. And I felt that I was in a position in my life where my mental health was very well controlled. I hadn't had an episode, fortunately, for a number of years. And I thought this is a space where I want to see change. I didn't know how it was going to look and I didn't know what projects I would become involved with, but I just had the intention. And like most things in life, it starts with the seed of intention. You just have to have the thought about wanting to make a change and then the universe takes care of the details. So for me, in my mind in Israel, I thought, right, I want to make a change in the mental health space. Then I started looking up volunteer organisations that work in that area and I applied for a few of them. And SANE Australia gave me a very receptive feedback and I hold that organisation very dear to my heart. They, they're not as well known as Beyond Blue, but they deal with complex mental health and they're a very sincere and loving organisation. And they were doing a program about um, people with lived experience. It was a video campaign. So it ended, up sh- it ended up seeing me share my story publicly for the first time in this really well-coordinated video uh, where I shared my message in a couple of minutes And that video went absolutely viral. It was shared tens of thousands of times on Facebook. It just went much bigger than what I anticipated. And that really showed me that this is a message that this is this is something that wider society wants to discuss. Um, We're ready to have the conversation. We just need the catalyst. And from that video, all sorts of things launched that I couldn't have even anticipated. Um, I was involved in Triple M's No Talk campaign, raising awareness about men's mental health. Numerous hospitals ask me to speak about mental illness, and I still do that to this day. Um, I often talk to medical students about the importance of looking after themselves and the importance of mental health first aid, not just doing CPR on patients. 
Um, and it's just springboarded all sorts of things, including this podcast. And I hope that it continues to springboard, not for personal um, notoriety or fame, but just so that I can be used to help spread the message and encourage other people to talk about this in wider society. Yeah, and I think um, I would just want to underscore that you are like the least fame-seeking person I think I've, I've met in, in your approach and your authenticity. And I can see very much that it is about the mission of spreading awareness, but also not just awareness, but comfort with sitting with the complexity of mental illness and how to um, embrace that and actually, you know, help catalyze positive change mm. for that. I just think that it's something that affects so many people and suicide is so painful and so unnecessary. And if there's anything that we can do to try and mitigate the risk factors, try and prevent these tragedies from happening, it's worth pursuing. And if it means telling my story another time or it means doing more outreach, then I'm happy to do that because I think I'm fortunate that I can articulate my experiences. There are other people out there that aren't so lucky. I've navigated the mental health system myself, both as a patient and a doctor. So I know the pitfalls and challenges of our overcrowded and under-resourced public health system. So I'm quite lucky in that I can advocate for myself, but there are so many people out there, not just my patients, but people in society that don't have the information, don't necessarily have the language to explain what they're going through. And I want to be the voice for them so that hopefully, you know, they can get help to prevent potentially prevent something terrible from happening to them as well. Um, I want to use my position, you know, to try and reach out to those people because I just think at a government and societal level, we're just not doing enough in this space at all. That's very well said. And so for yourself, I mean, how do you manage um, your mental illness um, on, on a sort of day-to-day or week-to-week basis? Is it, do you have like a set of things that you must do or sort of principles? I'm lucky that I've been well for a long time. I think self-awareness is pivotal in managing both mental illness but also just day-to-day difficulties, checking in with yourself. I do a lot of wellness, I guess, type activities. Excuse me. Um, I think that it's really important to schedule in wellness into your calendar, not just the blocks where you're working or, you know, all your kind of obligatory activities, the supermarket, everything else. I think it's really important to try factor in wellness on top of that because we don't place enough emphasis on staying well. And I'm not just talking about the absence of mental illness, the absence of features of depression or anxiety. I'm talking about how can I move from the spectrum of just functioning or just existing to actually thriving, to being a happy individual. So for me, that that looks like managing all the, the domains of being a person. So that's body, mind, spirit. Uh, so I guess from a body perspective, I, I go to gym three times a week. Uh, I go to yoga as well. I sometimes run. Um, I've been vegetarian since I was 12. And for me, that's a way of staying healthy. Um, from a mental perspective, I meditate every day. Um, I set positive intentions for myself. I don't do negative self-talk. I always try and um, be my own cheer squad and tell myself good things and encourage myself. Um, because I think that if you tell yourself negative things, it's like um, losing touch with your best friend. If you had a good friend next to you and you just said negative things to them all the time. They wouldn't stay friends with you for very long. Um, I nourish my mind. I play piano. I read books. Um, And then from a soul level, I write. So I write to get in touch with myself. Um, I use self-expression a lot. I articulate. I've got blogs, as you've mentioned earlier, not just about mental health, but around my perspectives of of life. Uh, Music is a way that 
um, a nonverbal way for me to express my feelings. And I'm just a big advocate for feeling the things that you need to feel. So we're often taught to run away from negative feelings. And I think emotions are a bit like a tunnel in that if you don't see them through to the end, you actually get stuck in the middle of the tunnel and things get repressed. So the only way through is forward and you have to sometimes just sit with negative feelings, negative emotions until you sort of get to the end. And then I think the final component that brings it all together is loving yourself and then setting your life up so that, because I think life is really a mirror, you know, our reality mirrors our inner world. So if you have a loving inner world, you can't be surrounded by people who criticize you. You can't have friends who neglect you. And a lot of changes actually have to make when you start to like yourself because you realize that the people in your world may only be there because of who you used to be. So a lot of changes do naturally take place when you start to like and respect yourself and that's okay. And um, just allowing that process to occur. And then I think you reach kind of an equilibrium where you're really happy with the people around you. They reflect you. They become a bit of a safety net for you. If you're not okay, you feel comfortable talking to them if you've got a problem. And then you've got all these other things around you. Like I mentioned, the meditation, the reading or whatever your hobbies are that serve to, um, you know, enhance your passions and keep your soul alive. So for me, that's that's my model of not just wellness, but then moving into a, I guess, a thrive territory of just being a really sort of centered and happy individual. That's a beautiful answer. And I think so much to, to learn from there. What is the conversation like um, when you've talked to people in your life about your mental illness for the first time, whether they're friends, family, colleagues, how do you approach that? And do you have any advice for how others sort of might approach that conversation? It's very different for everyone. I think everyone's got a very different level of experience of what they've personally encountered with mental illness. As I said earlier, ignorance breeds fear. So people who have never encountered it before might be a little bit taken aback from it. So I think disclosure is a very personal thing and it's up to the individual to feel that trust to know that they can talk to someone else. So the people who are very close to me and on my sort of inner circle didn't flinch when I told them or don't judge me when I've gone through difficult times before. People that don't know me as well perhaps haven't been as as present or available. And I remember when I was hospitalised as a medical student, a lot of people stayed away and I found that very hurtful and disappointing um, because friendship shouldn't just be about being there for the good times. And tragedy and suffering is a natural leveller in friendships and relationships. You find when someone dies in your family, people know how to be there in the immediate period, but in the later period of grieving, they back away under the guise of, oh, it's too hard, I don't really know what to say. So my advice to people is always not to stay away, you know, keep being there for the person in whatever capacity you can. If they don't want company, they'll tell you they don't want company, but, you know, just keep doing normal things, just keep doing the things that you do because staying away only compounds the isolation and makes it even harder to recover. You have to remember like people have much more of a chance of um, getting through the other side with your help rather than you staying away. My advice to people in terms of disclosure apart from trust is to give the information in a way that you feel comfortable with and also gauge what someone can handle So if you think someone's switching off from the conversation, then don't sort of push the point. But someone who really cares about you will be inquisitive. They'll say, oh, what does it look like when you're depressed? You know, they'll just ask that little bit more. They'll just show that little bit more insight and a little bit more emotional maturity. 
And I think those kinds of disclosure conversations are much easier. And don't be surprised if when you disclose, people then tell you their issues as well. So, I remember when my video through SANE Australia came out, I was actually working in an intensive care ward and I had so many doctors and nurses around me in that work environment the next day open up about their stories. One had panic attacks, one had drug-induced psychosis, one had depression, anxiety. It was like we were in (laughs) an Alcoholics Anonymous group or something where everyone (laughs) was, you know, coming forward and telling their story. This stuff is so common. People just don't talk about it. And when you take the chance of being vulnerable, people respond in like. People realise that they're safe. People realise that they're in their presence of someone authentic and they're not going to be judged if they tell their story as well. And we're all humans. Even if you don't have a label, everyone's gone through something. Everyone is going through something. So when you share authentically, people are more likely to share their story in like. So I guess to summarise vulnerabilities, uh, sorry, disclosure is a personal thing. You choose who you trust. Um, But my experience has been that people respond generally favorably and then often open up as well. How do you know... I mean, you, you talked a bit before about self-awareness. Do you have a good sense of when you may be coming, becoming depressed or becoming manic? I do, and I think that keeps me well. And, again, I look at the barometer not just in terms of having an episode, but I look at my wellness as an ongoing thing. So even if I have a bad day, that doesn't mean I'm depressed. But I evaluate that and I think, oh, what can I do to feel better? Do I need to have a bath? Do I need to catch up with a friend? So I look at mental health maintenance as a daily exercise. I don't even think about it as bipolar disorder anymore. And whether that's been the key to staying well, I can't say, but I haven't had an episode in a very, very long time. Mm. So for me, I don't wait until things get to extremists before I act. It took me many, many years as a doctor to call in sick for a mental health day. And I can tell you from experience, people do not do it. And I understand why they don't want to put their colleagues out. We feel a very big burden of responsibility for our patients. But I used to do on calls. I sometimes, when I was doing my kidney transplant job, wouldn't sleep for six nights in a row, would work 12 days straight, including overtime. And I was exhausted. And the thing that I used to think as I got more mature, but it took 10 years as a doctor to reach this point, if I crash my car because I'm tired on the way to work, who's going to suffer? Just me and my family. No one's, gonna, no one's going to be able to reverse that. So it's actually safer for me to call in sick if I can't function than to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. But unfortunately in my profession and probably a lot of other sort of type A type scenarios like lawyers and others, people just keep working, just keep working. And it's interesting even with COVID how with a runny nose you can't go to work. I mean, I used to go to work when I had the flu and I was sick as a dog, but I used to work because that was my work ethic, whereas Mm. now you're actually not allowed to. They'll temperature screen you or they'll ask you, do you have the symptoms? So it's basically the fear of COVID that's had to compel the change. Well, it has, but it's not the same with mental illness. So we have these suicides, we have people going to hospital, we have depression and all sorts of other Mm. things, but we're not putting preventative strategies in place for that. We're just letting bad outcomes occur. Whereas something like COVID, like you just said, well, we're stopping that at the door. And arguably mental illness is just on the spectrum of organic illness. Okay, so it affects the mind, but so does a migraine. And you'd never criticise someone for calling in sick if they had a migraine at work, but both a migraine and a mental illness are 
arguably organic illnesses. They both affect the mind. You can't see either of them. Mm. Yet one stigmatizes you and the other one doesn't. And to me, that just doesn't make sense. It makes absolutely no sense. Um, One thing I want to ask you about is having done the same video and gone viral through some of your other work, um, how do you feel about sort of being in a position of influence and responsibility vis-a-vis sort of mental health and, you know, because it must sort of be difficult thinking about being a voice of authority mm. in a space but not wanting to speak for everyone because it's a very diverse space. Everyone has their own challenges and opportunities. How really do you wrestle good, with that? It's a really good question. I know when I first took the, I guess, leap of disclosing in the video, I was pretty scared. I don't want to make any of what I've said tonight sound trivial or easy to anyone out there thinking about disclosing. It's 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 incredibly um, it's incredibly difficult. Um, and I remember wondering about what the consequences would be. Would it affect my employment? Would it affect how patients would see me one day? I had a lot of concerns, but I was passionate about it enough that I stepped over that threshold. And fortunately, it hasn't affected my career progression. It hasn't affected anything. And as I said earlier, it's actually enhanced a lot of things in terms of my ability to empathize with patients and also with other clinicians who might be going through difficult things. Um, so, but it was, you know, it was incredibly hard at first and I didn't anticipate getting to this point either. So when I started with the video, it was really just to share my story, just to try and destigmatize it a bit, but I didn't anticipate all the subsequent invitations, opportunities that followed. And I'm very grateful for all of those experiences, but there were a few moments where I thought, huh, this has actually turned into something. For example, I say in Australia asked me to write a blog about dating with bipolar disorder. So I wrote a general article about that. I wrote about the vulnerability involved, when to disclose when you're dating, some of the negative and positive experiences I've had with that. And then a friend texted me and said, did you know your articles on Bad Dates of Melbourne, which is a Facebook group dedicated to telling stories about dates, oh, really? bad dates in Melbourne. Is it popular? Like it's big... very popular and really? I follow it, but I just didn't happen to see it. And then I had a look and not only had had the producer shared the article, but it generated a really good thread of all different people talking about their different diagnoses, what's happened to them in dates, the difficulty with disclosing. And that for me makes me happy when I just see something that I've written has then allowed other people to feel courageous and brave enough to talk and then communities share ideas and then threads are formed and communities form. So even though there, I have moments of being slightly overwhelmed, it's always overcome by the fact that I feel like I can do something positive in this space and if it can help more people out there, then it's worth doing. It's amazing and I think, you know, you must have had some really interesting conversations over the journey, I'm sure. Yeah, it's true. That Every time I give a talk... There are always people that come up to me at the end privately to share their story, open up. Um, even when I did the Facebook group, I got all sorts of messages from people all around Australia, often in confidence. One that stands out was a psychiatry nurse who said that she can't disclose her depression to her colleagues because of stigma. And I thought, isn't that interesting if a nurse working in the psychiatry field feels too scared and ashamed to share with her colleagues you know, what would someone in wider society face? So there's been a lot of people sharing their stories with me, uh, opening up, wanting to make change, asking if they can help, asking if they can do research on the topic. So it definitely does open sort of a whole can of worms. And even when I gave a talk to final year medical students at Melbourne University, 
I had a handful of them in the talk say, oh, I've got this and this illness. I'm a bit scared about dealing with night shift. And they actually said it in front of their colleagues and told me after they've never told anyone about it. So me telling my story in front of them as a specialist who's maybe 15 years ahead of where they were sitting gave them the courage and the confidence to then share and open up to their colleagues. So I could directly see the effect that vulnerability was having and that power of um, sharing stories. Do you think we're getting to a better place or like if you had to pitch yourself forward another five or 10 years, do you think mental health and talking about it as part of identity will ever be okay enough that we could sort of disclose it in an email signature or a profile or just sort of say, like like you said with, you know, when you were talking about the, the blog and all the things that you would say about yourself and then at the end you say, I also live with bipolar disorder. Mm. You know, if we were to take the analogy that um, many people now think that gender identity is important to put their pronouns in an email signature, yeah. could we ever be kind of proud and comfortable enough as a, as a society to sort of say, Mike Davis, he, him, depression, um, X, Y, Z? Look, that's the world that I want to live in. Yep. And one of those sort of new age quotes I've seen is, be the change that you want to see in the world. And so for me, if I want to live in a world where discussing your mental illness is not seen as stigma and open disclosure is not such a big deal, then I need to do it or else I'm not living the example that I want to see. We're not there yet, but progress takes time. Culture shifts always takes time. I think Beyond Blue dramatically changed the landscape of depression and anxiety back in 2000 um, when Jeff Kennett was running the group and they've done some great work. But then complex mental illness like schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, bipolar disorder, and even some of the personality disorders like borderline personality disorder are much less discussed and are consequently less well understood and managed by clinicians and people in wider society don't know a lot about them. So even things like shock treatment, people still think of one flew over the cuckoo's nest and yet it's a very valid um, form of helping people with severe states of, for example, psychotic depression uh, and can be in a very effective therapy. So I think these conversations definitely help. Culture shift does take time, but we're definitely getting somewhere in that these things are being discussed. There are footballers that talk about their depression and anxiety because of um, probably indirectly what Beyond Blue has done. I think we do have to um, make a bit more tracks around the other labels and diagnoses. You often hear people say things like, I'm a little bit OCD. And that comment just gets thrown around and it really frustrates me because that's very different to what people actually suffer with when they have OCD. Well, have you had people say, oh, um, or overheard people saying, oh, you've changed your mind again, you must be bipolar. Or the, the, Correct. We- the weather's pretty bipolar this week. Correct. So yep. things like that get thrown mm. around and it's very insulting for people that actually have the illness. And I don't think people that say I'm a little bit OCD are intending to be, um, they're not intending to be malicious, but it is offensive. And I don't think people actually realise what OCD looks like and what someone suffering from OCD actually goes through. So we need to do some work around those mental illnesses that have lower prevalence. We need to do a lot of work around mental illness in the employment space and 
you know, open disclosure, not um, punishing people. We need to do a lot of work around prevention and mental health first aid. We can't just have Are You OK Day once a year, which may be a good initiative, but can be seen as a bit tokenistic. We have to do more real practical things to help people who are suffering beyond just a recognition day or for medical students, it's just an app about mindfulness. And again, I love mindfulness. I practice meditation, but there's systemic problems in the medical system beyond um, just breathing for 10 minutes. We need to actually address the systemic systemic factors that are contributing to mental illness. And that's part of this conversation. And it's part of why there was a Royal Commission into the terrible public health system that we have with regards to mental illness. And so I think when we have those conversations, when we gather that information, when there's enough momentum, which is palpably increasing in this space, then I think we'll start to see the kind of change you mentioned where people might mention their label or even feel the courage to talk more openly about it. But it has to start somewhere. It has Mm. to start with a conversation. It has to start with well-meaning individuals um, articulating what the problem is. And then it has to, then you have to reach a critical mass where enough people want to see the change, which then I think influences the rest of society. It's very well said. I just wanted to ask about platforms and sort of different groups like Beyond Blue, there's SANE, there's Movember. Are you affiliated with any of these groups? Are you an ambassador with them? So I'm a peer ambassador for SANE Australia uh, and also Beyond Blue. So I do outreach for both of those organizations i did a lot more talks obviously before covid um, and i've done a lot of blogs and videos for both organizations and then through my work um, at the hospital i'm the clinical wellness lead so i look after um, trainee doctors who are in trouble and also a lot of medical students reach out to me to give talks around um, different mental illness topics and ways to stay healthy and things like that And I do a lot of orientation programs through the hospitals uh, as well as different outreach talks to what are called grand rounds, which is where all the doctors in the network meet to learn about a topic. But I do that for mental illness as well. Um, And I'm actually happy to do anything. If someone out there thought that I could be useful in a space, I would encourage them to reach out to me. I'm just not aware of where I'm best suited or where this sort of talk might be most helpful. So I'm always available to um, to talk about these kinds of things. It's just a question of what's the best platform, what's going to help the most people, and then doing that sort of outreach. Yeah, that's that's very good. And, and how, how can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Um, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I'm happy to be emailed. Um, I've got a LinkedIn profile so people can message me that way. Um, and if you look on YouTube under my name, you'll see lots of different videos where I've actually given, a, I guess, an extended version of the talk that we briefly discussed about my story um, and some of the talks I've given at the hospitals. They've all been made public, so that can be um, readily watched. You just put my first and last names, of Deegan, and, yeah, you can watch them. Well, you put a very generous offer out to the universe <laughs> and we'll see what the Humans of Purpose universe we'll comes see. back with. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me, Dov. No problem. Thanks for your time. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. 
To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.